This is Ari Koretsky, and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. You know, I've been telling you lately about dailygiving.org, and I want to just highlight a couple of other features of this incredible platform today. First of all, you may not be aware that when you donate your $1 a day at dailygiving.org, you can do so in the memory of a loved one, someone who's passed on, or perhaps there's someone you care about who is suffering from an illness or from another travail in their lives, and you can donate this tzedakah, this charity, on a daily basis in their honor and their merit. In addition, this is one of the most diversified ways of giving charity. We think about ETFs and index funds in the finance world. Dailygiving.org is like the index fund of the charitable world. You're giving to such a diverse array of organizations. It's really incredible. Check it out today, dailygiving.org, only $1 a day. Meanwhile, I'm really excited for our conversation today with Sophie Barron. Sophie is a real Gen Zer. That means she lives on social media. She's a product of the generation of those coming of age in the last couple of years. And Sophie has created something that is not only wonderful, but is so incredibly necessary in our polarized and fractured society. And that is called The Conversationalist and a number of platforms surrounding that concept. The idea that Sophie has basically would have been pretty elementary until a couple of years ago. And that is simply the idea that people from disparate points of view can talk to each other civilly, respectfully, and in a way that allows them to learn from each other, to even perhaps, dare I say, change and be influenced by another opinion, and really to grow as individuals. And of course, anyone listening is familiar with the toxicity and the pervasiveness of cancel culture and all of the incredible difficulty we have nowadays interfacing with anyone from another point of view, whatever side of the aisle we're coming on in any particular issue. Sophie aims to remedy that specifically with young people by literally training them to have difficult conversations, to have fierce conversations about the most hot button issues and to really be able to engage in a respectful fashion. So Sophie is such a pleasure to speak with and I think you're going to love hearing the refreshing work that she's doing. Meanwhile, a reminder as always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook, Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Comments, questions to Jews You Should Know at gmail.com. Subscribe wherever you may be listening. If that's Apple, hit that little plus sign in the upper right hand corner so you can follow that's what it's called nowadays and all other platforms as well please spread the word to your friends and family and now to our conversation with the conversationalist sophie Barron. we are here with sophie Barron, the chief i guess ceo of the conversationalist we'll learn a little bit about what that is and all of her amazing projects out in social media land, but how are you, Sophie? Ari, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Awesome to have you. And for those listening, I met Sophie, or I'm meeting Sophie, heard about Sophie because of my work on college campuses. I encountered a wonderful young woman. We'll give her some credit. Liza Blumen, how you doing out there? So she's a great student, and she was just talking to me about my podcast, and she said, you've got to meet this young woman who I worked for, I interned for, she's doing amazing things out in you know, the social media landscape and really kind of bringing a lot of positive vibes to what's often a, a pretty toxic landscape in the world today, unfortunately. And again, we're going to hear all about that. But um, it's great to meet you, Sophie. And let's take it from the top. Tell us a little bit about where you're from, where you're coming from, and all of that. You got it. And definitely shout out to Liza. So excited to be here. So I am originally from Wichita, Kansas. Ari, have oh you ever been to Kansas? I have never been. You know, it's uh, you're not in Kansas anymore, right? That's the day. <laughs> never heard that before. Very good. Um, so original. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> very, very proud to be Dorothy reincarnated. Spent my whole life growing up in Wichita, but currently located in New York City. Wow. So how did your family end up in Wichita? Was that like generations back? 
Yeah, a couple generations back, my my grandparents on my dad's side grew up in Ohio and soon made the transition to Kansas and we've we've been there ever since. Wild. What was what brought them to Kansas? Was it some kind of business opportunity there? Yeah, a lot of business opportunity. Um, there aren't a lot of Jewish people there, so it came with a lot of sacrifice, but I'm really grateful for my Midwestern roots. That's for sure. So was there a Jewish community in, in Wichita? Yeah, there was definitely a Jewish community. There was a reform community and what I like to call a conservadox community. My family belonged to the more conservative orthodox community, but it, it was pretty small, you know, only about 250 families maybe. And my congregation was definitely aging. So I didn't have a lot of peers my own age. And my Sunday school class was only four people. So myself and three others, we all went to different schools. And so I just always grew up longing for more of a Jewish community of people my own age, Jewish peers, because that was hard to find in Wichita. Did your parents send you off to like Jewish summer camp or anything like that? Yes, they did. And I am so grateful for that. I think without having gone to Ramah, California, my entire life, I would feel very, very ashamed of who I am as a Jew and I think I grew up resenting a lot of my background because I was the only one. I just wanted to fit in. I didn't understand why I wasn't able to go to the homecoming football game because it was Col Nidre and I'd have to get benched at a volleyball tournament because I'm missing practice for the high holidays. And I just, I didn't really understand what it meant to be Jewish growing up. And so I'm very grateful for having gone to Ramah, California. Interesting. Did, did people constantly ask you about, were you kind of like the token Jew in your school? I was completely the token Jew. I mean, I I will say, I, I think it was more of a negative experience for me, but there were some great moments. You know, when I would bring in matzah and cream cheese and jelly on Passover, you know, my classmates would praise me for bringing snacks into class. But for the most part, people didn't really understand what it meant to be Jewish. I was the only one. And so whether I wanted to fit in or not, it didn't matter because I was immediately labeled as the other. Wow. You know, it's interesting. The name Baron is actually a um, a fairly well-known philanthropic family in the Jewish world. And I was curious if there's any roots there. For example, the rabbinical school that I went to, there is rabbinical college, was on the Henry Israel Baron or Israel Henry Baron campus. And there are many other such buildings around the country in different, you know, Jewish institutions. Is that your larger family? It is. Cool. Cool. So did you grow up knowing a lot about sort of that philanthropic legacy and being connected to that? Yeah, I think I grew up knowing that no matter what I did in my life, all that mattered was that I gave back and I helped make other lives better. So it was definitely like taught to me in that way growing up, always giving tzedakah every week um, and constantly thinking about how to uplift others around me. And did you know that some of the largest yeshivas in America were named with your family uh, name? I didn't. Okay. <laughs> I think a lot of my family, you know, we were not about the glitz and the glam. So it wasn't really something that I was told growing up. But now that I'm kind of grown up and I'm in the world, even walking around New York, sometimes I'm able to see that campus here in the city. And I feel a lot of pride to be able to help, you know, build in any way I can and further the Jewish legacy. Okay. Well, if you ever want a tour of Near Israel Rabbinical College in Baltimore, Maryland, you now know who to call. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I'm probably not the right person, but I would gladly go on the tour with you and have a great conversation. We can get you a a photo op in front of the big sign with your name and everything. Oh Uh, my gosh. No, thank you. I'm uh, definitely not the type of person that would want to do that, but I would love to be there and meet new people. And I actually know some of your cousins. I'm assuming they're your cousins. Uh, a friend of mine who's uh, a young man, Baron, who is uh, now lives in Baltimore, but studied and uh, went to school in Silver Spring, where I live. And Amazing. And he actually runs like a, a cool little um, sleepaway camp that he started now for a lot of the kids in the community and things like that. So that's, that's amazing. Uh, yeah. So a lot of the, the family name is one that I'm familiar with, even if we haven't met personally. So um, Ari, I love a good Jewish geography that, session. That's so it. I'm, that's I'm it. here for it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Amazing. So you're in Wichita. Eventually, I guess you matriculated out of there. Did you go to, did you go to UK or, or where'd you go? So or I did KU not go to KU. <laughs> <laughs> UK is University of Kentucky. <laughs> Kentucky, I'm sorry. Terrible contentious. mistake. Terrible mistake. I know. That was I was really there when we lost to them. Wichita State lost to them in the final four. I was devastated. Oh, that's right. Years that was smart, right? Go Shockers. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, 
oh my gosh, I just lost my train of thought. I was so excited talking about the shockers, but I finally left the Midwest and followed the Yellow Brick Road to the University of Pennsylvania. I always wanted to leave the Midwestern bubble. I think growing up, having gone to camp, having cousins all around the country, I was able to conceive of a world beyond the Midwest. And so I went to Penn, best four years of my life, and I'm so grateful for having gone there. What were your aspirations, like career-wise, going into college? Yeah, it's it's funny. I was always the kid who had no idea what they wanted to study. When I applied, I said I was going to be a modern Middle Eastern studies major. And I definitely took a few Middle East classes, but I didn't eventually feel that that was my calling. So I went into Penn knowing that I wanted to make a difference. I really grew up, like I mentioned, feeling a little isolated and unlike my peers. And I was always that kid who wanted to be a leader. I wanted to make a difference. I was always trying out for the lead in the musical, running for student body president every year, always putting myself out there to no avail. I was never awarded that official position. I was never given the lead in the play. And I you know, felt growing up that I was only allowed to be a leader if someone allowed me to be one. And so finally, when I got out of Kansas, I think I was able to see the world from a bigger perspective. And I finally felt the agency to use my voice and make a difference on my own. And I had this aha moment walking through campus one day that I didn't have to wait for anyone else's approval to go out there and be a leader. So I think the minute I got to Penn, I wanted to be a problem solver. I wanted to you know, see what I can do with my people skills and see what I can do to make an impact in the Penn community. And so I didn't know where it was going to lead me academically, but it definitely helped push me on this entrepreneurial path and eventually situated myself in the nonprofit leadership space. Um, I got my master's in nonprofit leadership, um, ended up starting my own nonprofit, scaling it across the country, um, and now trying to drive social good and social impact now through the private sector. So had an interesting journey. Um, and then I also studied communications, which is very on brand. I love having conversations. And I minored in music because I also love to sing. It sounds like you're in the yeah, musical theater. What's your favorite musical? Oh my gosh, that's a hard question. I want to hear yours too. I mean, I, it kind of goes in waves. Like I have a big Broadway playlist and some days I'll listen to a full cast album. Other days I'll skip through the playlist. But I would say all-time favorites are probably Wicked and Dear Evan Hansen. Um, I'm also a sucker for Hairspray and Rent. So many good shows, but it's impossible to pick one. What about you? So, well, I, I was in uh, Fiddler and Oklahoma and The Music Man in high school. Amazing. Um, Who were you in Music Man? I, oh, God. I was some small role, but I'm trying to remember. It's funny. I just watched it because my parents found all these old uh, VHS tapes, and then they had them converted onto digital. So I get, they gave me this thumb drive with like all these old movies from, you know, uh, from, I mean, I was in high school in the early nineties. So, I, you know, it's been a while. So they, I, I was rehashing it for the first time in, in 20 plus years. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I was also in the music man growing oh, up yeah? in Wichita. I was one of the kids. I came in playing a trombone at the end. It was, there we go. it was a great time. Go. Well, I've got to make a, an amazing podcast shidduch for you because the last person that I, that I, interviewed was a woman named Sherry Wallach. Um, and I have no idea whether her episode is going to come out before yours or not. So maybe guys out there listening have heard of her or maybe not yet. But either way, she is really amazing lady who, long story short, she ended up uh, traveling the country um, during COVID because she kind of needed to kind of get away from her life pretty much. And she ended up in New York City and she's a huge Broadway fan and she has all kinds of Broadway connections. And she got this apartment in the Upper West Side and she's starting this Breakfast with Broadway program soon. And she's going to be inviting Broadway stars to her balcony for breakfast. She loves to cook like Jewish food, like blintzes and things like that. And she wants to invite people over to come and have breakfast with Broadway stars. And she has, I'm not holding like super well in all the, you know, the big names, but she was name dropping a lot of people like the stars of Dear Evan Hansen and those different shows that she knows who have already agreed to come have breakfast with her and her, her dearest friends. So I've got to get you connected to that, Sophie. Oh my gosh. And I can't wait to listen. That sounds like my kind of show. Okay. But I'm going to see if I can get you the, uh, on the VIP list over there. Oh my gosh. I love it. So that's awesome. So you went to Penn. What was Penn like? I mean, obviously, I I'm familiar with Penn as 
from like a collegiate perspective, because I've been working on college campuses for many years and my colleagues have been there as well. Um, and I, so I'm familiar with the landscape a little bit, but I know Penn is just such a rich sort of panoply of opportunities. And, you know, at the same time, some kids that are very, very ambitious and driven and maybe opportunistic in a little, in, in a certain way. What was your experience there? My experience at Penn was fantastic. I think it is a culmination of all the things you just mentioned, Ari. I There was something about campus that made me feel like I could be a leader, kind of like what I was saying about growing up in Wichita and always feeling like I was only allowed to make a difference if someone allowed me to. There was something magical in the air at Penn where it felt like such a supportive communal environment where you can go out and make a difference in the world and Penn will be there to help you. And so I loved that about Penn. Maybe it was having Wharton on campus, but it was a very entrepreneurial environment, not just in terms of starting businesses, but fostering an entrepreneurial mindset and feeling like you can go out into the world, forge your own path and make a difference, which I loved. And I think on top of that, what's really special about Penn is its rich student diversity. And I know every college campus kind of prides you know, itself in its rich diversity, but maybe it was just coming from the Midwest, but it was really the first time I was able to interact with people from all walks of life, all religions, races, creeds, cultures. And it was amazing for me. I was always that kid introducing myself to the person sitting next to me in class, in line at the dining hall. I was always, always, always talking to people. And I think that really defined my Penn experience was immersing myself in the student culture and people from all backgrounds, and then finding ways to go out and solve problems, knowing that the university would be behind me. That's awesome. It's funny. I was going to say diversity is like many different types of Jews at Penn. <laughs> Which is definitely a huge part of Penn. No, Jew that's Penn, the only part, excuse me. Only part that I know. <laughs> Jew Penn's student environment. Yeah, yeah, I'm so grateful to have gone there. Did, um, you know, it's, it's interesting in my work with my limited exposure to students at Penn, I, you know, I've noticed a real distinction between kind of the Wharton kids and everyone else, um, where the, you know, the Wharton kids are like very type A, very focused, very driven. Again, maybe a little opportunistic in a certain way in both the positive and negative connotations of that. Whereas some of the other kids, like I've worked with pre-meds there, things like that, they're bright kids, but they're much more kind of, you know, I would say laid back a little bit and sort of more not as driven in a certain way, like still ambitious, but not as like, all right, you know, when the, from the time they're eight years old, they're got to get, get a, you know, internship at Goldman Sachs kind of thing. Did you notice that distinction as well? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, again, I can only speak from my own experience and I'm against putting people in boxes. So I don't know if I can say confidently that like every Wharton kid was of like course, of course. driven beyond, you know, any other student. But I just think the way in which the university culture was set up, it allowed for students to, I guess, do things bigger than themselves. So I think, you know, drive and that, you know, excitement to make an impact in the world differs between a nursing student and a Wharton student. But at the end of the day, I think because we come to this campus and we feel energized by the people around us, we were able to, you know, do our own things, whether it was starting a club, joining an acapella group, just really forging your own path. Um, And I I know I'm bringing up entrepreneurship a lot, but I think we're also lucky to be under the leadership of Amy Gutman, who's the president of Penn, who's also a fellow Jew. And every year she offers her own president's engagement prize and president's innovation prize for students to apply to, to essentially pursue an idea that they have to make an impact in the world. And if you're chosen, you get awarded $50,000 to go spend an entire year pursuing your idea. And so I think the fact that Penn is an institution that rewards innovation and impact is something that really left an impact on me. What was your Jewish experience like there? They've got obviously the beautiful, what is it, the Steinhardt Center? What is that over there? Yeah, Um, Steinhardt Hall. There we go. So what was your, were you engaged in that and and different parts of Jewish life? I know there's also Chabad, there's Meor, which I'm affiliated with. What was kind of your experience there? Yeah. So as soon as I got to campus, I immediately gravitated towards the Jewish community. And rightfully so. I mean, growing up without that, I finally felt like I had reached my community. I felt like a kid in a candy store. I couldn't believe there were so many Jews around me and different types of Jews who, you know, all related to and practiced Judaism differently. And so I immediately got involved in Hillel. 
And on top of that, I also joined the Shabbatones, Penn's premier Jewish acapella group. <laughs> and on top of that, I joined SDT, which, you know, unofficially is coined as the Jewish sorority. And so by the end of my freshman year, I had completely immersed myself in Jewish life. I was already running the Hillel social media accounts. I was on Hillel board, going to Friday night dinners, Shabbat at Hillel, and felt so enthused about Jewish life. So I feel very lucky to have started out that way. But I will also say that by immersing myself in Jewish life also helped me understand the most pivotal insight that kickstarted my career. And I don't know if you want me to go into that yeah, now. Okay, but... I mean, with, a, with a teaser like that, Sophie, how could I turn <laughs> you down? I am sure as a listener, you are familiar with The Forward, the longstanding Jewish publication. Well, The Forward has a new podcast called A Bintel Brief, based on the long-standing advice column in the paper. It is now turned into an audio advice column where you could get interesting answers to fascinating questions from Gina Green, who is a movement builder, very active in the Jews of Color initiative, as well as Lynn Harris, a writer and activist, also a comedian and a former advice columnist for Glamour and other print magazines of blessed memory. A Bintel Brief, B-I-N-T-E-L is the word Bintel Brief. Give it a listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. I had this moment that I'll never forget where I was in my second semester freshman year and I was walking through campus, the main area is Locust Walk, and everyone around me is flyering you, hanging out in their groups. It's like this exciting picturesque scene at Penn. And I was walking through campus and I had this moment where I realized that a lot of the people that I saw who I gravitated towards were Jewish people. And when I was walking through campus, I had this aha moment where I realized that it wasn't just me who was gravitating towards the Jewish community, but every single person around me was doing the same exact thing with their quote unquote identity groups. So the football guys on my freshman hall were like only talking to the football guys. You know, my friends who are Muslim were only really hanging out with the friend, their friends from the Muslim Students Association. And it really felt like that scene in high school musical where it's like stick to the status quo, stay within your groups. And I had this realization, which is there's probably a reason why we're all really only flocking together with people who are like us. And I think realizing that it wasn't just my experience really helped me for the first time to diagnose the issue of the echo chamber. And I realized that, you know, it's it's human nature for us to want to be comfortable and surround ourselves with people who look like us, think like us, you know, will reaffirm our own ideologies and experiences. But that really helped me realize that this could be the symptom of a larger issue that kickstarted where I am now with the conversationalist. So I took that insight and realized that there had to be a way to solve this problem. You know, that inner entrepreneur in me was finally ready to go out and solve this problem I saw in front of me because of the agency I felt at Penn. So I started having conversations with people from all different student groups, all different walks of life to really understand how their groups operated and you know, why people were kind of hanging out in their own groups. And that led me to start a club on my campus called Table Talk. I started up this club really with the intention of bringing people together from all walks of life to make new friends outside of their own groups. And in starting Table Talk, I was finally able to make an impact. And I felt like that impact was directly tied to who I am. You know, I was able to see the own problem within myself, apply it to the larger pen community, and then start to do something that would actually bring us outside of those echo chambers. So Table Talk started. And before I knew it, I was turning Table Talk into a 501c3 nonprofit, scaling it to over 80 college and high school campuses, really helping other people in their own unique environments create that unity across differences. So what was Table Talk exactly? I mean, I can sort of imagine that, you know, a table and a group of diverse people around the table talking, but <laughs> was it something more more developed than that? Yeah, totally. But definitely we had some tables with some talking. <laughs> the way that the club was set up is that we had different initiatives that we all enacted on campus within the group to bring people together outside of the classroom. So one avenue, like you just alluded to, Ari, was something called Table Talks, where we actually took a difficult topic 
and brought people together across campus and across the spectrum of that issue to come talk about it in smaller groups of people. So, for example, during the 2016 election, I realized that my campus was pretty polarizing and no one on my campus was having a discussion about the election outside of their own political party. So I decided to call a meeting with all of the heads of all the political leaders on campus, sit them in a room and say, hey, let's put on an event where we have all of your members come together. We'll mix everyone up, put them at smaller tables. We'll bring free food because who doesn't love free food? And we'll have a conversation. And I think a lot of people were hesitant at first because again, we're comfortable within our own silos. But I was able to create that event. And people from all across the political spectrum on campus came together for one night to discuss what brought us to the polls. And I can vividly remember sitting around a circle of chairs and listening to people who had all different vantage points of the upcoming election and feeling so excited that we were creating that dialogue. So that's one example of what we did with Table Talk, the actual table talking. But another thing that we did was to really just diagnose the issue that we weren't making friends outside of our groups. So It was pretty iconic, if I can say so myself. We took inflatable couches and placed them (laughs) all around campus on a beautiful day and allowed people to come sit on the couch and make a new friend. It was called Campus Couches. We held them multiple times a semester. We typically had themes to them. You know, maybe we would partner with the cooking club on campus and they would make guacamole and there would be chips or we'd partner with the coffee club and they would bring coffee to the couches. And it was a great way to bring people together with no agenda, but just to get to know someone who maybe they wouldn't interact with. So that was Campus Couches. And then lastly, we did something called Table Talk X. X meaning fill in the blank. So anything we could do within that realm of bringing people together would fit under that category. So for example, one thing we did was called Blind Brunches. This was a Table Talk X initiative where we would partner with a local restaurant in Philly. They would supply the food. And what we would do is we would bring people in and match them with someone who they've never interacted with before. And they would have brunch with a stranger. So it was just a great way to, again, bring people together, have conversations, but not every conversation needed to be serious. We just wanted to imbue and instill that idea that you can have friends outside of your own identity groups. Were these conversations like moderated or how did you, you know, deal with some the really difficult topics you mentioned 2016? There it's like, you know, it's not just like, you know, Coke, Pepsi kind of disagreements there, you know, talking about territory where people get unbelievably you know, sensitive and use the modern uh, campus lingo triggered, right? Of course. And, you know, for example, I've, again, worked on a college campus. I remember vividly an experience where I, I I think I said the word Trump one time and somebody was like, I can't even hear that word or something like that. So like, how do you, in an environment that's like so polarized, not just like, oh, I disagree, but like you're evil or like, I can't even hear the word that's coming out of your mouth. How do you, how did you kind of traverse that gap and get, you know, get through that? Yeah. So I think my answer is a little different for table talk, which is what we're talking about now versus what I do now with the conversationalist. But in that moment, thinking about that event that we did at Penn, it all started with creating buy-in from the leaders who represent the different groups. So that was like the magic ingredient, right? Like getting buy-in from all of these leaders of all the different groups on campus and getting them to put their mark on the event. So we created the entire agenda, the questions we wanted to ask, the intention for the conversation, and created that from different perspectives and people from all sides of the spectrum. So I think that was step one, right? Not assuming that we know how to approach this conversation, but really tapping in to that local expertise on campus. Number two is having our table talk facilitators be there to lead every conversation. So once we got there, everyone got food. I think we had Chinese food that night. And then everyone split up around the room in groups of people who are you know, unlike them. And what we would always say is, you know, we know you want to go sit with your friend that you showed up with, but we really encourage you to go sit somewhere where you don't know anyone in the group. So that naturally created different circles around this entire banquet hall for us to really maximize the potential to have a conversation because you're not swayed 
by the people in your own echo chamber. And then number three is having that facilitator that we trained really be there to guide the conversation. And so what we always say at the top of a conversation for table talk or the conversationalist is what do we want to get out of this? And what are we leveling in terms of the expectations? Because I think the number one thing we get wrong with conversation nowadays is that we are coming in to win a dialogue. But I've learned over the years that a debate is a completely different thing than a conversation. And we want to make sure that people are coming in with the notion that it's an exchange of ideas and experiences. And when in doubt, if you can speak from your own point of view, things that have helped form your political ideology, then you're going to be setting yourself up for success in this conversation. So that facilitator's job is to set the tone so everyone is on the same page. We all start on the same level. And then we can start having the harder conversation, knowing that that facilitator is there if things get out of hand. Did you encounter experiences where people really like we're, we're losing it. Like people were just, you know, getting so heated and so boiled up that it was like, you know, they get a spill over. So in that moment, I don't remember it that way. And maybe that's because it was, you know, years ago, but I think what was so unique is again, the way in which we set up the conversation. So it wasn't the 2016 election. Let's debate about it. The conversation was called what brings you to the polls. So it was really a dialogue around what matters to you, what do you put at the top of your ticket, and why do you prioritize that issue? And so I think that environment allowed for people to share from their own experience instead of who are you voting for on Tuesday. So I think that environment was very intentional that we tried to set up, but I don't remember any fiery moments, but let me tell you, I've had countless of them in the past, but that event in particular, I think was just this beautiful moment of unity that I can't put into words. I just couldn't believe that that could happen on my campus. I, I couldn't imagine it happening on, on the campuses that I've seen. So that's, that's pretty special. You know, it's interesting because you, you describe the distinction between conversation and debate. That being said, have you found that people have changed their opinions through conversation? I have. But again, what I'll say is that's never the goal. Like we never, ever set that expectation when you come into our community now with the conversationalist. Like you are not here to change your mind or change someone else's mind. What we're asking you to do is be open to the idea that there are other opinions outside of your own. And the more that you can hear them, the easier it will be to understand them that can help us come a little bit closer together as a shared humanity. So again, I know that sounds a little lofty, but I have found, you know, ever since we launched the conversationals two years ago, that there are certainly people who have changed their minds. I'm thinking of one, pe one person in particular who I'm not going to name them, but came into our community very, very, very closed off. This individual was a very, very staunch Republican, never, ever conceive of another person's point of view outside of their own, joined our app and joined our community to debate with others. And, you know, it was their way or the highway. And now a year after being in our community, this individual now considers themselves to be politically non-binary, meaning they've come so close to the center now, having encountered so many other beliefs and opinions outside of their own, that they consider themselves to not affiliate with either side because they can truly see both perspectives. And I don't know how I feel about that term. I think it's awesome, kind of how I feel most days politically, but it's been awesome to see how through those continued interactions, there naturally comes about change, but it's never set as an expectation from the outset. So you were running this really cool club at Penn, doing something really unique on a college campus. Uh, and it sounds like you scaled this around. So I guess you found partners or, you know, co-founders at other campuses. Yeah, I just reached out to friends who I knew were at other schools. Maryland was one of them, you know, oh. thinking of a friend who maybe knows someone at Maryland and I would have a phone call with them. They would either be the right person or the wrong person, but they would put me in touch with the next person. And it took like three or four calls to find the right leader to start the chapter. Awesome. How did the Maryland chapter go? <laughs> I don't think it got very far, but I oh, remember no. having a lot of, a lot of conversations with some Maryland students. <laughs> Yeah, they could they could be annoying sometimes. Sorry, guys, come on. What happened? What's no, Maryland was great. It was great. I just think it's it's sometimes not the right fit for everyone, right? To start a campus chapter, like it's like a full time job, and most students already have 
those jobs on campus. So. That's absolutely that's absolutely true. So you were r- running all these clubs and it was getting it was getting you know some scaling and so forth. Where did you go with it from there? Did you say, okay, I've got something. This is going to be like a career. Or was it like, all right, this is like my nice campus club, you know, and then I'm going to graduate and grow up and get a real job. Like where were your, where was your mindset at that point? There was definitely a turning point where I was debating whether I should continue with Table Talk or not. And this was in my senior year. I had applied for that engagement prize with the president and I didn't receive it. And again, I was feeling like, where do I go from here? I don't have any official backing from the university. They don't believe in my idea. I should stop. I'll just go get a corporate job. I'll go join, you know, consulting and finance like all my peers. But I think I realized in that fifth year on campus when I I was getting my master's in nonprofit leadership, I was still there. The more and more I learned about the nonprofit sector and every class that I was in, you had to do some sort of project. It was like pick a nonprofit or choose something of your own to like use as the case study. And the more and more and more I utilized the case study of my own organization, the more and more I realized that I couldn't see myself doing anything else. So Table Talk quickly became my career post-pen, but a few years out, completely changed course, but in the same sector. Got it. So I guess once you graduated and you had to make this a profession, that probably means you started raising money and doing all that. So what was that journey like from this? Again, a nice college club, you know, everything's your expenses are probably being covered by your parents. You know, everything's everything's nice and simple. And this is kind of your extracurricular to now it's like, okay, this is a, this is a real enterprise. I've got to fund it. I've got to, you know, fill my day doing this all day. What was that shift like? For sure. And I feel so lucky that I was able to even go down this path. And what I realized is that it all comes back to your network, right? Like all these relationships I had been building with presidents of clubs on campus or professionals from my nonprofit leadership master's program. I kind of fused all of that together to go out and start raising donations. So a lot of table talk for the you know year and a half I pursued it after Penn was through donations. That really helped me get this off the ground get the right people in place, you know, worked with a lot of interns, tried to keep expenses super, super low. But I was super lucky that that lesson that I learned in my program of being able to go out and get funding and be creative and be scrappy and, you know, be able to do things without all the, you know, perks that maybe another founder would have with seed funding helped me go for it. It gave me enough confidence to feel like I could secure enough donations from my network, the people who I met through Penn, the people who I knew from other parts of my life to help me get the organization off the ground. So you said you did this for a year and a half. What what were were the successes of that time period? And then ultimately what convinced you to shift gears? Yeah, I would say the successes were the scale. It was so, there was nothing I loved more than like finding someone on a campus, having that call with them and figuring out the path to find the right person to start the chapter. And I started to feel confident in the fact that I could go to any school across the country and find the right person to start this club. And there was something so exciting about that because it reaffirmed my hypothesis. It really showed me that this was an issue outside of myself And there are people out there who believe in it just as much as I do. So I would say that was the biggest, biggest success for me. And also being able to actually scale it. Like there was a moment where we were on 80 campuses and that was really mind blowing to me. But I think the the turning point was realizing that what I had been building wasn't built sustainably, meaning college students may have signed on to start this club at a time where they were super excited and wanted to add something to their resume and maybe would want to do it for a semester. But there wasn't a plan in place to turn over that leadership or a student would graduate and there wasn't something set up to keep it going because again, it's just myself and some interns running this 80 campus organization. So I think in realizing that, you know, not everyone was built to run a college club helped me realize that I needed to approach this issue from a different lens, meaning college campuses are not the only way in which we can bridge this divide. And so that sent me down this long path of spiraling and feeling like, you know, what can I do? What else can I innovate? What can I create to make this same impact outside of the campus space? And so I conducted a ton of market research and I really wanted to understand why is our generation 
failing to have these conversations? What is at the root of that issue? And so through that discovery process and synthesizing interviews, collecting data, one of the key insights that came out of that research was that young people feel like they don't have the agency to have the conversation because they A, either don't know enough or B, feel like they don't have the right to speak about that issue. They don't feel confident in their voice and they don't want to broach that topic with the people around them. So I then started thinking, what can I create to really solve the problem? Because the solution isn't really putting an inflatable couch on a campus, even though that was my favorite thing in the world. So I... I decided to go down the route of media. I thought, okay, what if we could equip this generation with the right resources and materials to have the conversations? They'll go out and have them. So I decided to create a media platform called The Conversationalist. And in our first iteration, we created articles, videos, podcasts, all multimedia avenues to have these hard conversations. And so that was step one. And then after we launched that MVP, we collected some data, figured out really if that was working, did people want this, did they like it, and quickly realized that media isn't always equivalent to conversation. So I don't know if you ever feel this way, Ari, but if I'm reading an article, there's no guarantee that I'm actually going out to have a conversation about it. Maybe I'm having a conversation with myself, some reflections, some inner dialogue, but the conversationalist is all about conversation. So if we're only providing things to get someone to interact with something, they're not actually having conversation. So COVID hit, we realized we needed to pivot. And what I realized is that this generation at this moment in time, more than anything, needed community. So the conversation was completely shifted. We got rid of the podcasts and the articles and the videos and started building a community ecosystem. We started using a platform called Geneva. We love their team. And it's a combination of what you would receive on a Slack platform and a Facebook group. And we created this hub where young people were coming to and flocking to 24-7 to make friends, but primarily to have these hard conversations. So the conversationalists really started becoming a community platform. And here we are now, you know, two years later, and we're completely pivoting and going in another direction now. But no matter what, at the end of the day, the conversationalist is suited to create that unity and create that destination for people to come together and have conversations despite any of our differences. Perhaps this is a, an ignorant question, but I'm trying to understand sort of the, you know, the need. I mean, I understand the need conceptually, but in terms of an, as, a, as a standalone platform, you know, why couldn't you just create a Facebook group called Hard Conversations or something and and moderate it heavily and say you can only come in if if you're willing to have a real conversation and kick people out if they're being obnoxious and, you know, whatever. And, you know, just like sanitize and maybe sanctify social media that already existed and that people already had adopted as opposed to creating a standalone platform. That's a great question. I have two answers. Number one, let's call it as it is. Not a single young person is on Facebook. So any platform that would provide what we felt was necessary to curate this dialogue is not a platform that this generation even touches. And I don't know if you feel this way, but I'm never on Facebook anymore except right, for birthdays. birthdays. <laughs> and so that immediately, that immediately was out the door. But I think it's interesting because what I'm doing with the conversationalist in a way is closing the divide, but most importantly, we're solving the issue of the echo chamber. And right now the echo chamber issue is bred on social media. So we've completely inherited and embraced social media as a tool that we use to create knowledge and understanding about that issue and giving young people some different tools to break their echo chamber on Instagram, on TikTok, on Twitter. But if we really wanted to create that destination where we can have those conversations, we have to do it somewhere else that isn't on a huge tech platform. We wanted to create that environment that felt intimate, almost like if you were in a Greek life organization and you're in the chapter house and we have different rooms for different conversations. We're all hanging out in the common room. We wanted to create an environment that was unique, that utilized features that felt akin to social media so young people would adopt it immediately. 
but would allow us to create a unique space that allows for our own community to thrive. So that was really our decision to go and use our own platform. And to this day, I don't regret it for one second. I mean, now these young people are using this app Geneva more than they're on TikTok and they're on there 24-7 having the conversation. And I think because it's not in a Reddit thread, it's not in a Facebook group, it's not on Twitter, allows for people to be open to the way in which we set it up to allow for the best conversations to happen. What was your... Um connection when club i mean clubhouse seemed like it had this like meteoric rise i don't i haven't heard about it in months but like for like a week it was like all anybody could talk about i don't know where it went it's probably still around i don't know but <laughs> what, what was that sounds like a very much you know like the audio version of what you're talking about yeah and we have audio rooms and capabilities on the app that we use as well um and i was very involved with clubhouse i built a decent following i was on the app six hours a day i loved clubhouse like no other for a good three months but then realized that it wasn't really having the conversations that i sought out to have and also there isn't a large gen z population on the app in the first place and we're a gen z platform so quickly turned away from Clubhouse, but utilized it as a user acquisition channel to build visibility for the conversationalists, help us grow just in terms of who we are. But it just, it wasn't right for this generation. You know, we're so, we meaning like most Gen Zers primarily communicate via text. And so Clubhouse had no texting capabilities. They just added it about a few weeks ago. But we needed to be able to combine the mediums so people could choose their own adventure. If they wanted audio, great, we have it. If they want video, we've got it. If they want an Instagram live, we've got it. If they want to type, you know, we've got it. And I wanted to be able to have all of those different mediums to have conversations to show people that it doesn't have to just happen one way. So what is the conversationalist? In other words, what's kind of like the meat of it? I, you know, I download this app. What do I do? Like walk me through, I'm a Gen Zer. Yeah, not not quite. Yeah. Look at all the, the white in my beard. But okay, let's pretend I'm a pretend I'm a Gen Zer for a minute here. What do I do? I get on this app, and and what happens? So let me take us back a moment. So I want to situate what the conversationalist is overall. So we, at the very heart of our organization, are a nonpartisan educational platform, meaning we have no political affiliation. We welcome all views on our platform and we have different offerings that will help Generation Z break open their echo chambers. And while we help them break open their echo chambers, we help young people have conversations that matter. And so if you're a young person out there who is passionate about any issue in this world, a current event, something happening in your own community, something getting you out of bed in the morning, we are the place for you because we've created a destination for our entire generation to come together to have these hard conversations. And we do it in three different ways. So our first and primary product that we offer is our talk show. We just launched the first ever Gen Z talk show. It's called POVs with a Z for Gen Z. And what we do is we pick a really, really challenging question. And I bring together young people from different sides of the spectrum of that issue to come and have that conversation. And so we're gearing up to film season one in person in New York. We're in development. And that'll, be like a, that'll be like a YouTube series. Yeah. YouTube audio will be distributed across audio platforms via podcast and the video will live on our website and YouTube. So right now we're gearing up to film in person all of these episodes about these challenging topics to help show how these conversations are had so any young person can watch them and feel equipped to go out and have the conversation themselves. So that's our first and primary product is our talk show. Very exciting. We just had a billboard in Times Square promoting our talk show. Whoa. It's crazy. So it's it's happening. We've had over 500 Gen Zers fill out our casting form who are excited to be on the show. And we're really excited to fill that niche. So that's number one. Number two is we have this community on the Geneva app. So think of it as a Gen Z network where young people are there 24-7 talking about every issue under the sun that matters to them. So if you wanted to join that community, which is probably our first touch point for any young person, go to our website, go to our Instagram, just tap the link and you'll be prompted to answer a couple of questions and you'll be in. And then you're in the app, you're there to talk, and we have different events and other offerings throughout the week through the community network. So that's our second offering is really that community hub we've built. And lastly, we're about to launch our new text line. So if we're really a platform that's setting out to educate young people on how to break open their echo chambers, 
we're now going to be sending you text messages to help you do that. So I can't give away all the info because it's not live yet, but we really want to be there to be that friend and that initiator of how to actually break open your echo chamber. And the way that we'll do it is through our talk show, our community hub, and our text line. And what would a text line be? Meaning like you'll send out texts to members or members could text in like questions. So it can be both, but primarily it would be, you know, are you signing up for our text line? And we say, we're going to send you a text or two a week that will help you break open your echo chamber on an important issue. So some kind of provocative content or perspective or something like, like that. Hey, Ari, I don't know if you've seen, but everyone's talking about Afghanistan right now. We'd love to help you break open your echo chamber on that topic. Tell us where you stand on that issue and we'll send you something that will introduce you to another point of view. Interesting. So that's got to be monitored by somebody live, right? To, to manage that. So we'll be able to automate most of it, but we'll definitely have someone there to be a human to interact with you, hear your viewpoints. So it can also be an outlet to feel heard. Really cool. Um, you, so when you said you're pivoting, and you mentioned that, is that is that what you meant? Yeah. So, you know, we started as that media platform back in 2019. And now we evolved into a community platform through COVID. And now as the world's going back to normal, we're launching our talk show and making that the core of our company. Amazing. I love this idea, especially in terms of, uh, I'm just thinking, you know, the way my mind thinks as a rabbi, I'm thinking about like the, you know, the parallel iterations for, from a Jewish educational perspective, like, yes. you know, text line, Jewish text line, like for, th- you know, things that you, uh, different perspectives that you might not know about in Judaism. I love that. That's really I love cool. That. It sounds like, how do you deal with, I imagine, you know, it sounds like it's a very fluid platform and you want to, you know, foster open dialogue, but do you monitor, moderate, how do you deal with hate speech, things like that? Yeah. So definitely we encounter that on the daily. We have a community manager. Her name is Elisa. She's fantastic. And she's there every day in every conversation, moderating it and managing it to make sure that nothing goes awry. But what we try to do intentionally is put out the fire before it starts. So when you join our community, you're agreeing to our guidelines, terms, and conditions that set us apart from Reddit, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. So we set out what we believe in as a platform, what we allow, what we don't allow, including our own definition of hate speech. And because of that, we have the grounds to take action if something goes wrong. So our goal as a platform in that community is to make you feel heard, but also teach you how to be a better conversationalist. And we have our own definition of that as well, but we're trying to imbue you with those values of how to have these conversations most effectively. And that comes along with really up, upholding and adhering to our guidelines. Do people ever complain or push back, say, oh, this is censorship yeah. or things like that? Totally. I would say less so censorship, but more so people who come into the conversationalist expecting it to be something it's not. Meaning people expect to come into a community platform as a young person to be surrounded by people who agree with them. And I think because of that, when we hear views that differ from our own, we go into fight or flight mode. We go on the defense. We aren't able to handle that in the moment. And so we're trying to help young people realize that that is our platform. We are not like every other Gen Z platform out there that's predominantly a liberal organization. We really welcome all views. And I think people realize maybe once they join that that is what we're about, even though we're upfront about it from the beginning. And I think people can realize over time that maybe the conversationalist isn't for them or they're just not ready. And that's what we're becoming more and more okay with because there are people out there who believe that having these conversations from multiple points of view are wrong, are harmful and or dangerous. And that's their prerogative. You know, that's their point of view. I'm not trying to change their mind. If you're joining our community you have to agree that that is the purpose of the community, not to belittle someone, shame, judge, cancel them for their views, but really agree to learn and grow and commit yourself to that conversational process. It's interesting because I was you know, wondering if the pressure or the pushback would come from, quote unquote, the right, where people would feel, oh, you're not hearing me. But it's interesting. You're saying it's really coming from the left, people who actually aren't ready to step into this place. They're too comfortable it's sort of that safe space, quote unquote, to use the cliche. And they're used to being coddled because most of the institutional frameworks in which they operate and maneuver are explicitly 
you know, designed in that way. And they're told that everything's going to be safe for them and there's not going to be triggering and, and all those kinds of things. And now they're in a place where, you know, that's just explicitly not the case. Yeah. And I mean, I can't speak for everyone again. Like Gen Z is not a monolith. The left and the right are not monoliths either. But it's interesting. I think I came in to this work expecting it to be what you said, Ari. Like I thought that the quote unquote right would be the stumbling block for us, but it's the complete opposite. I find that every conservative, libertarian, Republican member that we bring into the community is completely open to hearing multiple points of view, but our members who fall on the left side of the spectrum really struggle to do so. And so we're trying to teach them that, you know, if they want their opinions to be heard, meaning someone on the left or the right, they have to make the other person feel heard as well. You know, if you're someone on the left and you really, really, really can't believe someone on the right believes what they do, by cutting them out of your life, canceling them, pretending they don't exist, unfollowing them on social media, yelling at them, belittling them is never going to solve the issue. But if you can make that person feel heard and you can really commit yourself to trying to understand why they believe what they believe in, that other person is much more likely to give that right back to you. So that's what we're trying to teach people is we're not trying to force you into a room with someone that is going to make you uncomfortable and you know make you doubt everything you believe in. If anything, we're giving you the time and space to make your voice heard. And the only way to do that is to also give that back to the other person. Just starting to wrap up, Sophie, I'm just so curious, has this been picked up by kind of larger or I don't know, larger, but kind of popular mainstream you know, there's a whole movement now, like an independent thought movement. You know, Twitter, you see like people like Barry Weiss and and like this kind of alliance for academic freedom and like kind of this whole, I don't know what to call it, like a centrist sort of approach where people are, you know, pushing back against cancel culture in, you know, there's the, uh, there's the dark web, so the intellectual dark web, they call it, you know, Jonathan Haidt and Jordan Peterson, kind of all of that. Have any of these kinds of enterprises sort of picked up on what you're doing and interfaced at all with you? Not yet. <laughs> I would say we, we find a lot of young people who fervently believe in what we stand for as a platform. You know, there are countless young people out there that believe that cancel culture is not the way forward. And so we find people who come in and are ready to commit themselves to our community and process. But I think we'll hopefully see more mainstream adoption and press coverage and people coming into our world as soon as we launch season one of our show. So that's really the next step. And I'm super excited to put that out there because I think it will truly highlight in a visual format what we're actually doing. And right now, you know, you only really see it through our app, through our social media platforms, but hopefully that will give that third dimension to help someone really understand what we do. What's the launch date for that uh, that first season? If all goes according to plan, we're hoping that season one will launch on January 11th. Wow. Very exciting. Very exciting. And just lastly, Sophie, you mentioned that it sounds, if I heard you correctly, that you kind of had shifted from a nonprofit to a for-profit. And was it, was I right on that? Yeah. So tell me about that. Why did you do that? And what was the thinking behind it? Yeah, completely. So I have learned now being in a lot of my entrepreneurial circles, that there are so many ways to make an impact that do not rely on being a 501c3. And I felt that being a nonprofit, there were so many you know, obstacles and hoops to jump through and ladders to climb that were easily solvable by switching to a for-profit entity. Meaning if it was a privately run organization, there was so much more we could get done without waiting for a government grant, you know, to come through to keep the lights on or, you know, some of those traditional barriers. But what I'll say is that at the end of the day, it's all about impact. Like I'm not trying to capitalize off of, you know, Gen Z's fear of the feature and having conversations. It's a way in which we can sustain this organization faster. And hopefully down the road, I'll find myself back in the nonprofit space. And Table Talk still exists. So I think that's also a fun thing too, is that even though maybe the chapters aren't, you know, existing in the way that they used to when I was back at school, down the road, hopefully we can set Table Talk up in a way that it will benefit the conversationalist and vice versa. So we can make donations to Table Talk. Table Talk can then, you know, send students back to us at TC to help them have these conversations in different avenues. So I still like to think of myself kind of dipping my toe into both sides of the spectrum. 
Fabulous. Well, Sophie, it's great. To, I feel like a meta conversation here, a conversation with the conversationalist. You know, it's like, uh, that means I've made it. I've really made it. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm so, so grateful for your time. And uh, I'm so heartened by what you're doing because, again, I, you know, I'm kind of a, an observer uh, of the ca- college campus culture. And I've watched it changed, quite frankly, over the years and, and just seen how polarized it is and how you know, sensitive people are and how critical that education is, that ability to think critically, to have hard conversations, to, you know, to, to be able to enter into a space that, that you don't necessarily think of or, or, or you're not naturally disposed towards. Growth only happens in that uncomfortable place. And um, it's it just so uh, one of the, the, the most depressing aspect of this feature of modern life is that, OK, we can be in our we can be in our bubbles, but then ultimately we're, we are stagnating growth. And um, and that's really frightening to me. And so the fact that there is a platform that's helping people break free of that is really a growth engine platform in people's lives. And that that to me is really special. So I'm so grateful for what you're doing. Thank you so much, Ari. Thank you for having me. and. I just, I'd love to say, you know, as a Jewish person, I feel such a commitment to the root of tikkun olam. And I think going back to what you said, how can we ever truly repair the world if we're not willing to embrace that discomfort? How are we ever going to find that solution? And so I am empowered by, you know, the Jewish people to continue on in this journey. And I'm just so grateful to have been on your show. Sophie Barron, the conversationalist. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.